Good morning. Pastor's message this morning is from Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 15. The title is A Paradoxical Plan of Salvation. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle for the Gentiles, I magnify my office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling, the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, man is like grass, and the glory of us is like the flower of grass, and the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of God stands forever. Father, this is the word that you have revealed yourself to us through, and we're in awe of the way you work. You are not a God that we have shaped with our hands. You, have, you are not a God that we have made with our imagination. You tell us who you are. You tell us what you have done. You tell us what you are doing. And we cannot say to you, what are you doing? We cannot contradict you. And we can stand, though, in awe of you and your ways. And that's what I pray that we will do this morning. As we consider how salvation comes to sinners, we consider that you are doing that in ways that is not in a straight line. Ways that just exalt who you are. That tell us that we are small and without understanding and you are holy and great and unsearchable in your ways and in your knowledge and in your riches. We're amazed that your riches have come upon any of us and so we praise you and thank you in Christ's name, amen. A paradox is an apparent contradiction that actually has a meaningful or a non-contradictory resolution I've called this a paradoxical salvation or plan of salvation. And in many ways, this is the pattern we see in all of Scripture. Paradox, the way that God works. You know, it's paradoxical that God doesn't just work in a straight line. He works in surprising ways. Uh, the providence of God is how God ordains and governs all of his creatures and all of their actions. And we see that all throughout Scripture, but when we come to, to face God in the Scriptures as he's revealed himself to us, we're, we're faced with someone who is not like us. We're, we're faced with somebody who we can't come to terms with in many ways. Who, at the end of this chapter, Paul says, who can know this God? essentially, who can know the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, 
who has given to him a gift that he should be repaid. And he goes on and on and on and prays to God because God is God. And now we come to a text in Romans 11, 11 through 15, where in this chapter, we see, and in these verses, we see no small contradiction within God's people, his true people, about what Paul is saying, the inspired apostle is saying, and I say that we see no small differences of opinion in these verses, but when we get to verses 25, 26, later down the line, we see that controversy arise again, and that's not because we have Christians that don't want to glorify God or don't want to serve him or don't want to know the truth that he's revealed to us. It's because, as Peter says, Paul writes things that are hard to be understood in his writings, and people twist them. It's not my intention to twist any of the scripture. And I was admitting and I was confessing my own weakness to Brother Kyle and Brother Tim as we were praying beforehand. And I've told folks in this church, I have been all over the board in Romans 11. In the last four or five years, I have been all over the board. Praise God, I have calmed down and rest my feet solidly in convictions in many places in Scripture. And this is one of them that even this week as I was positioning myself as to where I stand, I was finding that I need to change, and I need to be corrected, and I need to be righted by Scripture, and then last night I needed to be righted again after I was all done being righted, and then this morning I needed to be righted again, but I think here's the point as I come and I convey that confession to you. The point is not, on the one hand, that we pretend that we know all of scripture, we know it per- perfectly, and we are convinced where we're at and will never be moved. But on the other hand, we know that wherever God's word leads us, there is where we stand. So we don't throw up our hands and we don't despair and we say, well, we'll never find the truth, and then we'll never, and then so as to say, oh, we'll just give up, and, and then we start twisting scriptures to just fit our frame. That's what people do when they come to difficult things. Ah, this fits where I stand, so I'll just, or it doesn't fit, so I'll twist it to fit where I stand. No, we have to conform to the word. We have to conform to God's word. And I pray that what comes to you this morning will be the unvarnished true word of God. We've already seen that the majority of Israel have rejected Christ. This is true even to this day. Nevertheless, in verse 2 of chapter 11, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Therefore, there remains a remnant chosen by grace down to this very day. And that remnant is that distinction of, rather, that makes the distinction of the remnant and the majority of Israel that is unbelieving comes down not to the works of those, the remnant or their goodness or their virtue or some foreseen uh, faith or action or purpose that they have done that has driven God to choose them over the majority of Israel, but we read back in verse 6 that the difference is according to grace. God's choosing a remnant out of Israel to this very day is in God's doing. It's in God's prerogative to show mercy on whom he will, and on whom he will harden, he will. And so we've already seen that in regards to Israel. We've seen that from verses uh, 7 through 10, 
the apostles spoke very strongly about the majority of Israel being in hardness, being in blindness, being in deafness, being spiritually in a state of stupor, slumber, sleepiness. They have no spiritual senses, in other words. They're in spiritual bondage, even as it were, bending their backs, Paul says, forever. And all the way back in chapter 9, verses 31 and 32, Paul describes their hardening, their stumbling in this way. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. That's the evidence of their stumbling. They would attain righteousness through their own law-keeping. Why did they stumble in this way? Why did they not reach it? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And this is what he says then. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And here's what he says in verse 9 of chapter 11. And David said, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. And so... This state is the state that Paul leaves us in at at verse 10 when he says they will bend their backs forever. This is how Paul begins, in fact, the teaching in verse 11, which is such a surprise after we read those three verses. Verses 7 through 10. Let's read them together. What then? Israel failed to obtain it was what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, what is surprising is what we read then in verse 11 through 15. And this is the first point I have, and this will go right into the second point. I have two points. And the first point is God's purpose in Israel's stumbling. You might ask, you might come to the conclusion that this is going to be the way that God deals with Israel Until the day that Christ returns, a remnant will be saved, the rest were hardened. But what we read in verses 11 through 15 teach us something else that God has in plan. He asks here a question at the very beginning, something that he's done throughout the epistle. He asks these questions so as to bring us to the teaching that he wants to instill in us. So I ask, did they... Israel, that is, stumble in order that they might fall. The point of the apostle is not to imply that they didn't fall. They did fall. Everyone described in verses 7 through 11 to this day who is under those condemnatory hardening, that judicial hardening of God of the people of Israel have fallen and everyone that have fallen in that state have finally fallen away and will face eternal wrath. Let's be clear about that. He's not trying to ask the question, did they really fall? Yes, they did fall. Those who were hardened are indeed children of wrath. Spiritually speaking, they bear, bear in a sense more guilt 
for their sin and unbelief because of the benefits they received. If you go back and you read in the first part of chapter 9, you receive all these advantages that came to Israel, and yet the majority of them did not receive the Messiah. The majority of them are under the condemnation of, say, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God abides on them. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and when they went about to establish their own righteousness, they stumbled over the means of their salvation, namely Jesus Christ. They have truly succumbed to the hardness of their hearts. But Paul's question is to put it this way, it has to do with the purpose of God in their hardening. The purpose of God in Israel's hardening and their blindness was Israel's stumbling an end in itself? Is this all there is to say about Israel's stumbling? That that's it. That's all God was doing in it. And his answer is the, the way he's answered all of his rhetorical questions. Meginita, by no means, God forbid. That is not God's purpose. It's not his his goal merely that they be judged and he gives two positive answers in light of that negative answer he gives two positive answers what then is God's purpose in their stumbling and it's important that we see these in succession to each other so the first is he says rather through their trespass trespass means they went Against, they sinned against what God revealed to them. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's one of God's purposes in their hardening. And this is powerfully illustrated in three New Testament texts. Turn to Matthew 21. We're looking at their trespass, that is, the majority of Israel... They trespassed. Israel in general, we could say, is trespassed. But because of that, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now listen to this parable that Jesus speaks about, the parable of the tenants, Matthew 21, 33 through 45. Hear another parable, he says. And here he's coming down to the end of his ministry. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to go get his fruit. And the servants took his servants, then the tenants, I'm sorry, took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son, but when the tenants saw the son, They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? Now, I believe that parables have one essential teaching to them. Jesus is going to teach and he's going to explain what his teaching is as we go down further. But what we see here is an example of the redemptive history. Remember what? Paul says of Israel, God says of Israel, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a gainsaying people, a contradictory people. You know how God stretched out his hands? 
through the sending of the prophets. Through the sending of the prophets. Constantly they were going and constantly they were, as we read in Hebrews 11, being killed, sawn asunder. I was talking to Barry, they're reading Isaiah. Tradition says that Isaiah, the great statesman prophet, tradition says, was sawn in two, cut in two, by the people God sent him to preach the message of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And Jesus said to the generation that he came and preached to, he says, all the blood of the prophets is coming down on you. You, you're like your fathers before you. Because they rejected the prophets, and here I am, the prophet, the prophet, and you will reject me. And so, hear what Jesus says in this parable. When the, therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, do you remember back in Romans chapter 9, that stone that the builders rejected, that they, Israel, stumbled over? This is a parallel. This is exactly where Paul is going. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then he says this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. They understood the parable, and they understood it, in the sense of the truth of it, the truth of the matter is those wicked servants will be judged. And Jesus says, here's what it's going to turn out. They are going, that's you, you're the parable. The lawyers, the Pharisees, the unbelieving Israel, you're those whom God sent the prophets to and who I have been sent to and if you will reject and the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now, we learn a little bit more of who that people is when we go to Matthew 8, 11 and 12. Who is that people? Jesus says here again, Matthew 8, 11 and 12, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, that reference to the east and west is a reference to outsiders, Gentiles, people that are not of you, our descent. They will come and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who the promises have come through. That means they are going to reside in the same fellowship as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this is the contrast. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Who are they? Those who are by nature children of Abraham. That's who they are. Those who are by nature the ones who had all the promises spoken to them through Abraham and through the prophets and through Moses and, and the Jews who were by nature children of Abraham is who he's talking about. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then third, the third example is Paul himself, the preacher to the Gentiles. Remember what we're looking at. We're looking at Israel's trespass leads to the Gentiles' salvation. Acts 13, 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, that is, to the Jews. 
First, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And this is what we read in the very next verse back in Romans chapter 11, verse 13. Paul saying this, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my, my ministry. That through the failure of Israel, the gospel has come to Gentiles, we need to reckon this morning. Listen, I don't know of anybody here who has Israeli descent. Some of us probably do. With the way these, these uh, Ancestry.com stuff works, you just have pretty much everything in you. You know, the idea of racism is just laughable when you start just seeing who, is, who we are. Uh, and yet, we know that does not determine our eternal destiny. But what Paul is saying here is, because the Jews rejected, because in large part in general, Israel rejected the gospel, salvation has come to the world, to the Gentiles. Now we need to reckon what this means for us. We, we, Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 22, that salvation is from the Jews. And, and that is true in so many ways. It's, it's, their, it's the oracles God gave to them that we have. It's the promises God gave to them that are ours through Christ. It's the inheritance promised to them that we get through being children of Abraham by faith. I mean, everything that we as Gentiles receive, the Messiah came through them. And here we see even their unbelief. It was according to God's plan that even in their unbelief, that's the means whereby salvation comes to us, Gentiles. And so Paul magnifies his ministry. Now, if their trespasses means, notice, this is the valuation of our salvation. He says in verse 12, again, if their trespasses means riches for the world. And if their failure, that is, that word failure, the Greek has to do with a battle and, and their loss of numbers in a battle. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles. Now, these two words, world, cosmos, and Gentiles here, this is a parallel sentiment. The riches for the world are riches for the Gentiles. Paul is using a parallel here. The world is the Gentiles. He's saying their trespass, the Israel's trespass, Israel's failure, means riches for us. And this riches that we are speaking of here, this salvation that we understand cannot be understated or overstated. We cannot see this as, as some riches or merely a portion of what God has to give in salvation. This is everything. This is what, how Paul describes these riches in this context. In chapter 9, verse 30 or 23, he says, this is the riches of God's glory. Boy, you don't get better than that when it comes to riches. 
This is the depth and the, the length and the breadth and, and the vastness of what it means that we receive riches because of Israel's failure. The riches of God's glory in chapter 9, verse 23, in chapter 10, verse 20, or 12, he says God is rich who, to all who call upon him. But it's in God's person himself that he bestows these riches. This is no slack or no second tier salvation that we're reading of. This is God himself bestowing his own glory, as it were. The riches of his glory in verse 33 of this own, this, this chapter, verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 33, I'm sorry. Oh, the depths of the riches in the wisdom and knowledge of God. This flows from God, this riches of salvation to us. Through their trespass. Through their failure. Through their unbelief. Through their defeat in battle as it were, as the Greek would have us understand it. Salvation is from the Jews even in their unbelief, beloved. And that's important when we come later down the line because Paul wants something for us Gentiles in all of this, and that is humility. Humility. I'm going to leave that for another message. That's what salvation is all about, though. Is for us to know our place in it. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of our doing. But there's a second positive answer to why Israel stumbled. And here's where we see this paradox. I, I mean, that's a paradox. Why, why, why would God cause, or why would Israel, or God in, in his plan, reject Israel so as to save us? There's, you can't give an answer to that question. If you start doing it, you're not going to be in the Bible anymore. That's what God did. That's what he's revealed. They were hard. They were unbelieving. And God hardened them. And he rejected them. So that salvation would come to us. That's according to his plan. We'll see that in verse 15. This is God's purpose being, being unveiled to us. And if you try to make ends meet with it, you will wind yourself way out of Scripture and you will wind yourself into idolatry. That, that's where you'll end up. But there's another reason that's maybe even more difficult for us to fathom. Israel fails. Gentiles receive salvation. And now he says, in order to make them jealous of what the Gentiles have attained by grace. So the second positive answer to why Israel stumbled is to make Israel jealous of what the Gentiles have obtained. Verse 11, at the end of it, rather through their trespass, that's through the trespass of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Listen to this statement of purpose. So as to make Israel jealous now, there is a jealousy that can harden people. But we read as we go down, this jealousy is not for their hardening, but for their salvation. 
Now, this paradox is a desired outcome of Paul's ministry, as he says in verses 13 and 14. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I, I make it known that I am going to preach this good news to the Gentiles. Why? Verse 14. Not only to save the Gentiles, but in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And what's the end of that? And thus to save some of them. So here in verse 14, we see what end jealously may lead to, namely their salvation. And thus, he says, save some of them. He's humble about his ministry, isn't he? And he's humble about... he. He doesn't know God's timetable necessarily that through my ministry I'm going to bring in a great resurgence back into Israel. He just says I'm going to be faithful to my ministry. I want to magnify what God has called me to. So that's to save some. That is, as the number of Gentiles come into the kingdom of Christ, the Lord, through faith in the gospel, Paul's uh, urgency here is in his concern and his Uh, His uh, goal is that through the influx of Gentiles into the kingdom, Israel, his fellow kinsmen, according to the flesh, would become jealous. And I ask, jealous of what? What are they jealous of? You know, that jealousy doesn't work when we say there is no part in in New Testament Christianity in the Old Testament. Stanley, whatever the younger son is of Charles Stanley. Oh, we don't need to go back and visit the Old Testament at all. We New Testament believers. We don't need to do that at all. You know what the New Testament does? Is it, is it makes the Old Testament known to us. And it, beautif- it, it, it turns a light on. That's how B.B. Warfield spoke about it. The Old Testament is a, is a massive room full of the most exquisite and beautiful furniture. And it's dimly lit, and it's hard to see your way through it. And then Christ comes, and the New Testament comes, and it, and it turns on the switch of the Old Testament. And you see your salvation in light of it. And you see the glory of God in light of it. I think that's what he means of jealousy. What does he mean by jealousy? To make them jealous. You and I are recipients of the promises that God made to Israel through Christ. Listen to this. In chapter 4, we, Gentiles and Jewish believers, are called heirs of Abraham, children of Abraham, offspring of Abraham, and our inheritance is what was promised to Abraham in chapter 4. We are recipients of the new covenant which was promised to Israel through Christ's blood. Chapter 3 and chapter 7, chapter, seven in he- or chapter 8 and 9 in Hebrews as well. The Old, text, the Old Testament text regards Israel, regarding Israel applies to us through Christ, the offspring of Abraham. We learn that Jesus is the actual, the full and the grounds of the fulfillment of of the promise that God gave to Abraham in Galatians 3.16. He didn't give it to many. He gave it to one, and that is fulfilled in Christ, and Christ is that fulfillment. And so all those who are in Christ, chapter 4.18, chapter 9.25 through 26, these promises given to Israel 
come to us as Gentiles. We were not a people, Paul says in chapter 9, verse 25. But that in Hosea chapter 1 and chapter 2 was a promise. Those who are not a people shall become a people. That was a promise to Israel. And Paul says that is for the Gentiles. Well, how does that come? Because in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. That's where they are established. That's where they are fulfilled. And that's where jealousy comes. You see, Paul is preaching this gospel that is intricately connected with the Old Testament because he knows that's where jealousy will arise. If there's no connection, if this is just some separate thing that God is doing now with no connection to what he's done in the past, there's not going to be any jealousy. If there's no inheritance, if there's no heritage, if we have no place with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, like Christ said in Matthew chapter 8, and Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, what are they going to be jealous of? This is not some new, absolutely new fundamental thing that God had, had just decided to do at some moment in, in 2,000 years ago. This is something connected to the Old Testament. And I want us to grasp, grasp that. Otherwise, there is no jealousy for the Jews. Otherwise, Paul's urgency to preach the gospel to us will not fall out to them. God's work in salvation is interconnected, and there's a continuity to it, such that when the Jews see our salvation, they say, that was promised to us. That's what makes them jealous. Their Messiah is ours. Their promises are ours. Their salvation is ours. The apostle doesn't expect here to save all of Israel, but only some, he says. And although he says that, we do get in these verses something more than just some. And this is one of those areas that I have been back and forth for the last four years and where I've been coming to, again, back to a place of seeing that this text demands even something more paradoxical, if you will. As we read this, we read that God has a future for this Israel, this Israel in general, this Israel that was described in all those hardening ways in verses 7 through 10, now not all the individuals, but this Israel as a corporate entity, God has a future purpose for. Now, it's one of the most difficult things, and don't scoff at it as I say this. It is one of the most difficult things to keep right in this chapter who exactly and what is Israel Paul is speaking about. Because he starts in the beginning of chapter 9, which is part of this context, that not all Israel is of Israel. Beginning of chapter 11, this is cha verse 1, in fact, speaks about Israel in general, Israel as a whole. Verse 2 makes a distinction between those whom he foreknew of that general Israel. And then we get this distinction of grace, which is the remnant, and then the majority of Israel. And you guys are going, oh, maybe it is difficult, right, to understand. I hope so. I've been wrestling with it for weeks now and for months and years, and I probably will wrestle with it 
and you will, I pray, uh, continue to wrestle with it until God grounds us, establishes, and makes us strengthened in the conviction of what it means. And God willing, we'll see some of that here. But we need to keep who Israel is in front of us. Now, we see the distinctions in verses 1 through 10 between the remnant and the rest of Israel. Israel in general, you might say. And this distinction is drawn out to verse 10. And in those verses, we learn what makes the difference between the whole of Israel and the few that believe and the mass who don't. That's the whole, the few who believe and the mass who don't. That's the whole of Israel. And since verse 11, it seems clear that Paul is speaking again generally of Israel without making any distinction regarding the remnant which was and is currently being saved. So he seems to be aiming his attention at Israel in general, which currently, as we look at Israel in general, I think this is what he wants us to see. They're in unbelief. Israel in general right now is in unbelief. We don't look, when we think about Israel, there's a sort of ex, experiential notion to what I think the Paul is, that Paul is speaking about here. When we consider Israel in our mind, we don't think of them as a believing people. They are in, they are in unbelief. That's how we think about them. Yes, there's a remnant but in general, Israel is an, an unbelief. And I think that's the way he speaks about them in our verses here. Since verse 11, he speaks about them in this general way. But it's in this context that we should take then a closer look, especially at verses 12 and 15 together. Let's read those verses together. Now if there, now these pronouns, as Brother Jim mentioned, all refer to Israel. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, their full inclusion there can mean a few things, but it probably means both an eschatological conclusion, meaning God has a, a, a time when he will cease calling them but in that time, there will be a full number of them, meaning a full number according to God's purposes at that time will be saved. Verse 15, for in, if their rejection, now that accords with trespass and failure above, but now on God's part, he's speaking if their rejection, so this is God's purposes being worked out, means the reconciliation of the world, our reconciliation, the world is Gentiles there, those who have believed. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5.14, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, that is, not just Jews, Gentiles. What will their acceptance mean? Their, meaning Israel, acceptance mean, but life from the dead. Now, both of these verses intimate two huge realities in God's plan of salvation. First, that Israel has a future in God's plan of salvation. But notice what we're saying when I say that. I mean Israel in general. I mean the experiential Israel that now we see in unbelief, 
I think Paul is saying that same experience that we would look out if we were alive at the time when this happens, we will understand Israel to be in large part, in the vast majority of part, in belief. Believing, a believing people. When we think about Israel, according to these verses, I think that's what he's trying to say is at that time, when we read the words full inclusion in verse 12, <coughs> excuse me, and their acceptance in verse 15, it will lead us to understand that God has a future saving plan for Israel. <coughs> Sorry, getting going here, aren't I? Now, we're going to consider more in the coming weeks of what that future salvation looks like. <coughs> Sorry. But we need to first recognize today that this full inclusion and acceptance, verse 15, verse 12, seems to imply more than merely a future remnant of Israel. All the, the pronouns are they, there, there. They all refer to Israel in general. And so when we read their full inclusion, you know, the difference is that some people say, well, that just could mean that, that just means that their full inclusion means that at the end of the age, the remnant will come to a full number. But what it seems to be here, that their full inclusion means greater benefit for the Gentiles. Again, he says, for if their rejection, see their rejection is what we can say about Israel in general now. What will their acceptance, the same Israel, what will their acceptance mean? You see, it's the same Israel in general. The Israel that is now mostly in unbelief is the same Israel Then, then, at that day, will be accepted. And so I think what we're talking about is not merely the remnant, but we're speaking about a full and an increased number of the people of Israel coming to faith in Christ. This means that it is in, indeed that Israel that's at this time and continues to stumble now and has been rejected by God, albeit not holy, Paul's already made that point, <clears throat> such that someday, according to God's purpose, it experiences a full inclusion and is accepted <coughs> in the Beloved. For now, what we can expect about this future saving of Israel is that the, the day, and that one day, the way we will think and speak about them generally will as to be as to speak about them as believers. I think that's Paul's point here in this text. And so here, this is where we see this paradox. Israel's in unbelief. They're hardened. Here, he says in verse 15, in general, they are rejected now. They are not my people in general. And yet, through their hardening, through their rejection, Gentiles receive salvation. Through that salvation, Paul and God has a purpose to make Israel jealous in small part now, but at some part in a full way, in some time rather, in a full way to bring them 
as a people back to himself. That is not something you're going to figure out on your own. <laughs> and this, that's what I want us to understand here. When Paul says, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom of God, who can know the mind of the Lord? Who, who has been his counselor? Paul knows these things through revelation. The Holy Spirit is revealing them to him. If not for that, we would not be figuring this out, folks. God is not a God that you can calculate. He is not a God that we can sit down with a pen and a paper and uh, God's going to do this at this date. On November 3rd, there's going to be an election or 2nd or whatever the day was. What is the day? I don't know. There's going to be an election and we know what's good for us and so we're going to get the leader that we want, right? Some of the greatest expansions of Christianity were under wicked rulers, historically speaking. I'm not saying I want a wicked ruler. I didn't pray for a wicked ruler. Both are sinners. Let me get that out of the way. Both are far from Christ. But the Most High rules in the kingdom of men to this day. And he sets over the, the basis of men. And no one can say to him, what are you doing? We cannot calculate God. We can't calculate this, what he's doing in eternity, in his plan of salvation for Jews and Gentiles, and we cannot calculate what he's doing right now. Tomorrow is in his hands. And so are you. That's where we are thankful. No one will pluck us out of his hands. He is good. He's already demonstrated everything we need to, to trust him for eternity. Second, though, in, in closing, Israel's future salvation in this way that I believe Paul is describing, and we'll see it open up even further, abounds to the good of all of God's people. It bounds to a, an apex of joy is how I think about it. Verse 12, now if their trespasses, again, Israel's trespass means riches for the world, that's us, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, that's us, through Christ. How much more, that is, blessings will come to us, I believe, or rather to all of the church, will their, that is Israel's, full inclusion mean. And then again in verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? but life from the, the dead. So their rejection is our reconciliation to God. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now there are those who teach what Paul is speaking of here is the end of the age. What he's, what he's saying here when he says life from the dead means that at, at the point of Israel's, uh, this influx of them coming to Christ, this great day when they will come in large number and generally be known as God's people in the sense of actually receiving Christ and truly being his people, spiritually speaking, that at that point, the resurrection of the dead will, will happen and the end will, will take place. And yet, this text doesn't allow that, I believe. 
Life from the dead is the only time we ever see that phrase in the Greek, anywhere in the New Testament. And it doesn't have a very important word when we understand the resurrection, the final resurrection. The word anastasis is the word that Paul in the scriptures usually use to describe the bodily resurrection in that final day of God's people from the grave. And that's not used here. The, the words are zoe and nekros in the Greek, and that means life and death, literally. I believe what Paul is getting at here is that in the day, in this appointed day, that is not yet, but in a day in God's timing and his plan when he will then again bring Israel to faith in Christ. And how's that going to happen, by the way? By grace. It's going to be a work of grace according to his plan that they're going to come back to him through faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, and to his glory alone. And this is what I think Paul is meaning by this phrase, life from the death, is I think at that day and that day, there's going to be such an overflow of joy in the church. What does it mean now that we are saved? We can't get greater riches than we already have now. Our salvation is perfect. It's God's glory that he's bestowing upon us in our salvation. You don't get better than that. So Paul is saying how much more? What does he mean? I think he means there is a a greater experiential fulfillment of God's saving purpose in the world that It's as if it were life from the dead. There is a joy that abounds then (coughs) to God's grace that is new in a sense. You could think about it as another reformation, a final reformation, a great awakening that would bring all glory and all praise in all honor to God for his great salvation. Let's pray.